MSW Media. I'd like to thank Switchcraft for supporting this show. Switchcraft is a mobile game with a unique blend of TV-worthy writing, choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative, and thousands of magical match three levels. Download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. And please join me in welcoming a new sponsor, JennyKane.com. Create the space you'll never want to leave and get 15% off your first order. Go to J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com and use my code AG at checkout. So to be clear, Mr. Trump has no financial relationships with any Russian oligarchs. That, that's what he said. I, I, that's what I said. That's obviously what the, the, our position is. I'm not aware of uh, any of those activities. I have been called a surrogate at a time or two in that campaign, and I didn't have not have communications with the Russians. What do I have to get involved with Putin for? I have nothing to do with Putin. I've never spoken to him. I don't know anything about him other than he will respect me. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. So, it is political. You're a communist. No, Mr. Green. Communism is just a red herring. Like all members of the oldest profession, I'm a capitalist. Hello, and welcome to the MSW Book Club. I'm your host, Allison Gill, AG, and this is episode three of the book Go Back to Where You Came From and Other Helpful Recommendations on How to Become American by Wajahat Ali. Today, I'm going to cover chapters two and three, and we begin on page 52 in the hardback edition with Say Hello to America's Oldest Friend. And Waj opens reminding us that his job here and his, in this book is to help you become American. But your enemies are legion, he says. Your enemies range from comical microaggressions, like speaking English slower and louder so a person of color will understand you, to frustrating microaggressions, like when people assume you don't speak English at all. And your enemies include online trolls telling you to go back to where you came from, stereotypes used by politicians weaponized to scapegoat entire communities of people, managers who underpay you or won't hire you at all because of the color of your skin, shopkeepers who stick to you like glue following you around the store, and neighbors, Karens who call the cops on you for barbecuing or jogging in broad daylight. Now, Waj suggests we call this insidious desire to dominate the whiteness. And uh, it's so insidious that it has corrupted well-intentioned people, including people of color, enough so so much that they they voted for an incompetent vulgarian, quote-unquote, in 2016 and 2020. And he says the whiteness always plays for all the marbles and isn't interested in a representative government or free and fair elections or everyone's access to the ballot box, but rather it wants a border wall, a Muslim ban, and affirmative action for rich white students at Yale. And the ultimate goal is total domination. And I'm thinking back now to Mary Trump's book, The Reckoning, um, sort of brings that back to the front of my mind. But Waj says, white people are human beings. And after a lifetime of observing them, he concludes many of them like juicing, turtlenecks, Peloton, bumper stickers, and donating to NPR. And since every culture has its own weird rituals and customs, who is he to judge? Quote, white people are not the Borg. White people come in different shapes, genders, nationalities, political persuasions, and personalities. But in America, white as a racial category was invented by the ruling class to create a system of privilege and power at the expense and exploitation 
of black people. But when white supremacy is discussed, some whites take it as a personal attack. They get defensive and they shut down. Uh, or they'll get defensive and say things like, hey, I'm woke. I'm woke, though, and use specific examples of how they're not privileged or racist. And here on page 55, Waj lists some of the defenses you might hear. I'd totally march with MLK if I were alive back then. Uh, I went to the Beyonce concert and I loved it. I once had an Asian boyfriend slash girlfriend. I love Indian food, even the spices. I hated the white family in Get Out and clapped when they died. <laughs> I convinced my friends not to wear blackface or brownface, yellowface, or a culturally appropriated costume for our neighborhood Halloween party. Yay me. I voted for Obama. I read Michelle Obama's Becoming, and I made my mom read it. I made my dad read Between the World and Me. I love Rumi and Sufism. Uh, white people suffer too. Just read Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> and I don't see race. Yeah, so that's some of the things you might hear in uh, defensive clapbacks from the woke. And, and he says those are the pleasant encounters, by the way. Others will hit back harder, suggesting Waj is the real racist for bringing up race in the first place and always talking about race. And he assures us this isn't his first rodeo and says the enemy is not white people. But if we don't name and acknowledge the real enemy, we can't fight it. And he goes on to say, the whiteness doesn't want us to be American, but since it can't remove all of us, it will find a way to dominate us and make our lives uncomfortable. So here on page 56, Waj shares helpful, a helpful guide of 15 ways to give into the whiteness and assimilate. And I'll just read these. Censor your baby's ethnic names. Instead, ask yourself what American names will white people like? Adam and Layla are safe bets. Study the Rust Belt and endlessly interview white, undecided voters in Midwestern coffee shops to understand white grievance. Uh, be an essential worker during a pandemic, but never demand or expect essential wages, benefits, or health care. Assume that wealthy and white immigrants are expats, while poor and black immigrants are foreigners and, pu uh, public, and a public charge who should go back to their, quote, shithole countries, lust after white immigrants from Norway preferably the ones who look like Vikings and Thor. Number five, say you're drinking chai tea and eating non bread, otherwise known as TT and bread bread. Number six, whine about liberal college kids and being canceled by woke activists from the platforms of influential newspapers, magazines, podcasts, and talk shows. Number seven, applaud the curiosity and bravery of your white colleagues for tackling subjects in which they have zero expertise, while the person of color with the actual experience is relegated to work on ethnic stories and diversity issues. Always assume your white colleagues are neutral and professional, and your colleague of color is biased and emotional. Number eight, support free speech by trying to ban critical race theory from being taught at schools. Protect your children from turning into godless Marxists who hate gender pronouns and white people. Uh, number nine, be the one token person of color at school or work who does all the work in educating everyone about history, culture, racism, and diversity without asking anyone to do any homework or heavy lifting of their own. Number 10, refer to the children of Latino immigrants as anchor babies and the children of white immigrants as babies. <laughs> Celebrate wealthy white men with silver spoons for keeping it real when they challenge you by feeling politically incorrect. Um, or by being politically incorrect. But when a person of color challenges you, call them uppity and angry. Number 12, 
See John McCain, born in Panama, and Ted Cruz, real name Raphael, born in Canada, as red-blooded Americans while suspecting black people like Barack Obama and Kamala Harris, both born in America, uh, as being foreigners. Number 13, rail against Mexican immigrants and, quote, welfare queens for being lazy and taking handouts, but whine and complain when the government takes away Medicare and Social Security for real, quote-unquote, hardworking Americans. Number 14, refuse to accept Santa Claus, a fictional character, as anything other than old, bearded, and white, and become enraged over the fake war on Christmas and ignore the real war on terror that has killed and devastated tens of thousands of innocents. And number 15, demand immediate racial reconciliation, uh, but never the truth. Hmm. Those are the 15 ways to assimilate per wash. And here's where we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Chapter 3 on page 60 in the hardback edition right after this. Stay with us. Hey, everybody, it's AG. And now I know from experience that decorating a home isn't always easy. I just gutted my house after I got rid of my ex. And this year, I am trusting the expertise of Jenny Kane Home to curate my space and make it the space of my dreams. Jenny Kane Home is making it easier with their stylish interior essentials. They have everything you need from timeless furniture to elevated accents, and there's something for every room and style and sensibility. It's wonderful, beautiful, simply just clean lines, amazing colors. JennyKane.com is sponsoring our show today, and they're offering you 15% off your first order when you use code AG at checkout. I have finally found the perfect pieces for my space, thanks to Jenny Kane Home. I love their aesthetic, effortlessly Californian, and each piece, whether it's a candle, a throw, or a sofa, makes a room look beautiful and feel complete. My new favorite thing from Jenny Kane uh, and the Jenny Kane Home collection is my alpaca throw, which, by the way, has been co-opted by podcat Bruce Willis, who allows me to use it in exchange for turkey bacon, though. It is ridiculously soft. It's my whoopee. It comes in beautiful and timeless neutral colors. It works with any color palette in any room of the house, and it's going to be part of my decor for years to come. So if you're like me and can't get enough of Jenny Kane, I recommend going to Jenny Kane Rewards. You'll get exclusive perks and benefits like birthday surprises and early access to new launches and new products, and you'll earn up to 10% back on all your purchases. Join today, and you'll get 100 points. Create the space you'll never want to leave at JennyKane.com. Get 15% off your first order when you use code AG at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E.com and use promo code AG. You'll be glad you did. All right, everybody, welcome back. We're on to chapter three on page 60, and this chapter is called Do Something Useful. And I got to say, after I read this chapter, as a comic with a, quote, useful day job, doing comedy at night and working at the VA during the day, I can relate a little to what Waj is talking about, but only just a little. Uh, and Waj says as far back as he can remember, he wanted to be a storyteller. And I think back to that uh, story he told about the fifth grade teacher that found and promoted his 10-page story based on Kevin Costner's Robin Hood. But, he says, as the only son of a Pakistani immigrant uh, or Pakistani immigrants, he reminds us of the Holy Trinity of occupations. Quote, the doctor, the engineer, or the businessman who somehow makes enough money to buy a two-story house, a nice car, marry a nice wife, produce 2.1 good children, and send them to a good school. The only other possible occupation is failure. Now, early in his writing career, he would hear the same refrain from aunties and uncles in his community, which was, why don't you do something useful? But Waj's parents were different than most immigrant parents in that they nurtured his artistic side, but encouraged him to get, quote, insurance in the form of a degree that would provide a, quote, stable backup. And I'm going to break in here, though, to tell you about something comedians 
specifically have to deal with, and that is the shame associated with having a day job and being relegated to what is called be, what is called uh, hobby comic, that moniker. Apparently, if you have a day job, you're a coward who isn't willing to live under a bridge and starve for your craft. Anyway, just wanted to throw that in there. But Waj and South Asians didn't have many examples of success in acting in television and media. There was Art Malik as the leader of a terrorist group in True Lies, but that wasn't enough to justify encouraging your child to get a quote-unquote useless degree. And, and then Waj talks about how some Muslims forced their MVP, Cat Stevens, to prematurely retire. He, quote, converted and renamed himself Yusuf Islam, our white knight, our daywalker, our hero with all of our strengths and none of our weaknesses, who gave the world peace train and decided to support Ayatollah Khomeini's ridiculous fatwa against Salman Rushdie and quickly fell out of favor with fans in the industry. He even gave up his greatest gift, his music, deciding it was non-Islamic, unquote. But of course, he started back up 28 years later, still a staunch Muslim, but wiser. And what Waj would say uh, as a practitioner of an open, healthy and more traditional form of Islam that celebrates such beauty like music. 28 years. And, and Waj says he thinks a lot about those years, the years he lost and, and told himself he'd never go out like that. And in the face of, quote, why don't you do something useful? He still wanted to be a storyteller. And when he was young, he'd imagine himself a big Hollywood director or writer. He would daydream about walking the red carpet with his wife, Winona Ryder, and practicing his humble but shocked face when Jim Carrey would call out his name as the winner of the Oscar for Best Director or Writer or whatever. And, and, and that was, by the way, just going to be his summer job because in the winter, he'd be uh, in the starting lineup for the Golden State Warriors, a quarterback for the 49ers, and a hitter, pitcher, and catcher for the Giants and the Oakland Athletics. But in reality, he says, quote, I had terrible allergies, was overweight, had limited arm strength, couldn't dribble, and all my school friends and family knew it. But he didn't need to be an athlete to be a storyteller. He could create stories where he wasn't the goofy cab driver, where he wasn't mocked or villainized. He was Indiana Jones. He was Marty McFly. He was a billionaire playboy by day and superhero at night. But back in the day, that is not how Muslims were depicted in the movies or the media. And came Apu on The Simpsons, who, yes, was from India and Hindu, but pickings were slim, he said. They didn't have Mindy Kaling, Hassan Minaj, Riz Ahmed. And they did have Short Circuit in the 80s, which featured a positive character, Ben, an immigrant with an accent who was a brilliant scientist and, and, and you know, helped out, assisted Steve Gutenberg. But it was in the 90s that Waj realized the actor who played Ben is a white dude named Fisher Stevens. He says, quote, it was like when I found out root beer was an alcoholic or braces weren't actually orthodontics. <laughs> and I was like, what? Braces aren't? What did you think braces were? Well, he tells us what he thought braces were. He says his mom used to point out that the grocery store clerk where they went to get their groceries had braces. And the reason he had braces, look at his black teeth. The reason they had braces, he had braces because he told lies to his parents. So Waj was shocked when he learned the true purpose of braces. Now, historically, Waj says if you're a storyteller of color, you either work in the service of white men or you don't work at all. Now, the 2020 Hollywood Diversity Report says 91% of studio heads are white, 82% are men. And among senior executive positions, 93% are white and 80% are men. So Waj asked a friend of his, a showrunner, how do people of color even make it in such a white-dominated industry? And he was told it starts in the writer's room. 
Because most writers get the writing job from other friends, other writer friends and people they know. And most white people know white people. So, you know, but do white women and men look outside their own social bubble for talent of color? Right? Do, do they? Quote, we gave them resumes and clips and reels and nothing ever changed until the spotlight was put on all industries after 2020 to acknowledge the diversity gap and actively do something about it. Of course, 2020 were the protests over the murder of George Floyd. Minorities buy the majority of the tickets, by the way, that keep Hollywood churning out content that ignores them, stereotypes them, and silences them. Quote, in 2019, we bought the majority of the tickets to eight of the top ten films. And I'll read here from page 68. One of the many advantages of being white in America is not only do they get to tell our stories, they get to play our protagonists as well. A brief Hall of Fame tour of recent whitewashing. Scarlett Johansson in The Ghost in the Shell, a Hollywood adaptation of a Japanese manga comic where the setting is Japan, most of the characters are Japanese, and her character's name is Motoko Kusanagi. Number two, Emma Stone is Captain Allison Ng, the half-Asian love interest of Bradley Cooper's character in Cameron Crowe's Aloha. Uh, the White Kids in The Last Airbender. This one hit hard because they destroyed a fantastic cartoon series with Asian and Native American characters. Uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender. It was directed by M. Night Shyamalan, a Desi, who should have known better. Come on, man, I've defended you for the happening, and this is how you repay us, unquote. Next up, Joel Edgerton, an Australian white dude, is the Egyptian pharaoh, and Christian Bale, a Welsh white dude, is the prophet Moses in Exodus, Gods and Kings. Director Ridley Scott said, I can't mount a film of this budget where I have to rely on tax rebates in Spain and say that my lead actor is Mohammed so-and-so from such-and-such. I'm just not going to get it financed. Next up, The Social Network. Mark Zuckerberg, a white Jewish man, is played by a white Jewish actor. However, Divya Narendra, a real Indian-American who sued Zuckerberg, is also played by a white guy. It isn't a lead role. It's not even a supporting role. The producers could spend millions of dollars to digitally recreate Army Hammer's face onto another actor's body to have him play identical twins, but they couldn't find one Desi kid to play Narendra. Unquote. And that brings us to the section of Chapter 3 called How I Became Islamic Rage Boy. It's on page 69, and we'll get to that, but we do need to take another quick break. Stay with us. Hey everybody, it's AG. Today's episode is brought to you by Switchcraft. I love this game. There's a lot of match three games out there, but they have, they're, you know, they're just like lame. Even the themes and characters don't even change. And even if they do, it's the same tired format. Uh, so you don't get that kind of compelling story that keeps you on the edge of your seat. The exception is Switchcraft. It's a match three game that's different from the rest. A beautiful, magical, and gripping graphic novel. I love it. And this novel comes to life in this amazing mobile game with thousands of magical match three levels. Switchcraft boasts TV-worthy writing, and I totally see it. It's it's so good. And it's got a choose-your-own-adventure-style narrative and a unique art style, which I also really enjoy. I love the beautiful art and diverse characters, too. There's diversity. The story features over 85 characters from a variety of cultural backgrounds, differently abled and LGBTQ plus characters. Plus, you can take part in a multitude of challenges while experiencing the unfolding storyline. I love it. The game never bores me because the storyline is so interesting. I just want to keep playing to discover what happens next. Switchcraft casts you in the role of a witch 
at Pendle Hill, the world's top witch academy. And the story starts with the disappearance of your best friend. And it's up to you to unravel the mystery of her disappearance. And you play your way through hundreds of enchanting match three levels, unraveling a dark and mysterious tale. It's really, really awesome. It's, it takes your mind off of everything that's going on in the news. I absolutely love it. And you can download Switchcraft for free and unlock the magical mystery. All right, everybody, welcome back. I'm on page 69 with How I Became Islamic Rage Boy. And Waj says, framing is everything. Quote, in media, framing theory is everything, which is how a subject matter is presented to influence what and how you think about it. And the person who controls the frame determines how the audience sees reality. Unquote. After 9-11, Muslim and Islam was often framed with a low-angle, close-up, extreme close-up shot of a scary bearded brown man dominating women um, so say, he says, say assalamu alaikum to Islamic rage boy, the anti-American, anti-Western, anti-democracy, anti-deodorant, violent foreigner. Now there's another image of Islamic rage boy you've probably never seen, a warm, medium close-up shot of a smiling bearded brown man, uh, brown man named Shamil Ahmad Butt, a Muslim activist whose neighbors describe as well-mannered and sincere. Two frames, two different images. Uh, and in the media, Muslims and Arabs are almost always portrayed as the first violent terrorists, people about to become terrorists, people aiding terrorists or family members of terrorists. But that's not new. Muslims have been demonized by the West for thousands of years. Wash says, starting with Pope Urban II in 1095, who declared a crusade to cleanse the Holy Land from Muslim infidels. Then in the poem, The Song of Roland in the 11th century is depicted the Muslim slaughter of 20,000 soldiers in Charlemagne's army. In paintings from that era, Muslims, much like Jews, were portrayed as animalistic, that whole dehumanization propaganda thing. Dante's Divine Comedy, where we see the prophet Muhammad uh, and Caliph Ali being tortured in hell. <laughs> Voltaire in the 1700s portrayed the prophet Muhammad as a paragon of fanaticism, quote, an imposter desiring self-glorification and beautiful women who is willing to lie, to kill, and even wage war against his homeland to get what he desires, unquote. Uh, but then Rousseau, a titan of the Enlightenment, portrayed the prophet Muhammad as a brilliant leader and a sage legislator in the social contract that he wrote in 1762. Now, he influenced a lot of political revolutionaries with that writing, including Thomas Jefferson, who in 1765 ordered a copy of the Quran and apparently held the first White House iftar dinner during Ramadan in 1805. But over 200 years later, Trump would cancel the annual White House iftar dinner tradition and enact the Muslim ban. Now, back, uh, it, back to the 70s. Let's go back to the 70s, when Saudi Arabia and several Arab countries imposed an oil embargo on the U.S. for helping Israel in the 1973 war. We had the gas lines, remember? In 1979, the Islamic Revolution of Iran overthrew the Shah, which was a U.S. ally, and kept 52 Americans hostage for 444 days. 86, the U.S. bombed Libya, and then we had Operation Desert Storm in 91. And not coincidentally, Hollywood protagonists ended up fighting these enemies. Late historian Jack Shaheen examined a thousand movies featuring Muslims, Arabs, and the Middle East and found 936, 936 out of the thousand were negative depictions. The New York Times depicted Islam and Muslims more negatively than they portrayed cancer, cocaine, and alcohol. And even though white supremacists are the number one domestic terror threat, Muslims uh, accused of plotting violence received seven times more media attention and four times longer criminal sentences. So Waj says, what we really need to do is, quote, flood the market with our stories, populated not by Rage Boy, but by characters that accurately depict our lived experiences and our community's legacies. And that brings us to the final part of the chapter, 
chapter three, called Scorsese Fellini Ali. And he opens with how he met his friend Kashif, who would they 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 would make movies together <laughs> when they were like 10 years old. They would spend weekends also sneaking into theaters and they would like plan it out like a heist, which theaters, what movies they wanted to see hiding in the arcade in between the two theaters to get into the other one. And um, the first movie that they made at home, though, when they were about 10, included Kashif as the hero who had to retrieve his Air Jordans stolen by the bad villain, who was, of course, played by Waj. Kashif enjoyed the technical camera work, setting up different camera angles. Waj was better with dialogue and character development. And they made several movies over the years. And Waj's parents encouraged it. And by age 11, he was actually trusted to rent the weekly family movie. And he'd bring home anything from The Godfather to Tommy Boy and Pulp Fiction. And, and because Waj was the wise ass in school and super into pop culture, folks thought he would grow up to be a stand-up comic. And he would end up trying out for school plays, but he never made it and thought maybe he'd be better suited to audition for the school's improv troupe. He tried for two years, right? Sophomore and junior year. Flopped both times, saying it was because he was unwilling to go all out and commit to the scene. Fully commit to the bit. He was unable. So when he was a senior, his last chance, he decided he would not hold back. He'd leave it all on the stage. And he crushed it. And he got in. And they and they would eventually put on a show in the local mall. And Waj ended up in the local paper. But he kind of kept that from his family, right? Because of that whole, what will people say thing. Now, a few years later at UC Berkeley, he was again the only brown and Muslim dude in his improv troupe. And he found that the identities that often excluded him from the American narrative actually became his strengths. But after 9-11, they thought about disbanding the troupe. But as it turned out, people needed to laugh. They wanted to laugh. And they came up with a sketch where Waj would play Captain Islam, an average dude by day, superhero by night, with a giant letter I for Islam on his chest and a bath towel for a cape. Amid the backlash against Muslims following 9-11, the, the improv troupe wanted to not only just use the moment for comedy and laughter, but also for healing. Quote, let's do it, I said. Captain Islam suited up and made his premiere on the UC Berkeley stage a few weeks after 9-11. The audience responded with the night's biggest thunderous applause. A silly sketch, some humor, some storytelling. That's what connected with a diverse audience in need of solace, comfort, and understanding. That and a brown dude with a giant eye for Islam on his chest. <laughs> so great. Seriously. Uh, thank you all so much uh, for listening to the MSW Book Club and for reading this amazing book. I'm, I, I wish I could portray it the way that it does. You just have to read it. You absolutely have to read it. I'm, I'm just sort of going over <laughs> what's happening. Um, but again, I, it, it, trying to relay the absolute hilarity and darkness and gallows humor of, of what Uwaj is able to put across, I, I, I can't fill those shoes. But uh, So I hope you're reading along. Um, and that is the end of chapter three. I'll be back next week with chapter four. Also out today, a new episode of Muller She Wrote featuring Pete Strzok. And I'll be back tomorrow with the Daily Beans. And by the way, if you haven't been getting the Daily Beans in your Apple podcast feed, something's wrong with Apple. All you got to do to fix it is unsubscribe and resubscribe to the Daily Beans, and that will fix the problem. We did put in a ticket with Apple, but of course, we haven't heard anything back all week. But the Beans is there, and it'll be there tomorrow. I'll be there for you. And until then, please take care of yourselves, take care of each other, take care of the planet, take care of your mental health, and vote blue over Q. I'm AG, and this is the MSW Book Club. The MSW Book Club is executive produced by Allison Gill in partnership with MSW Media and written by Allison Gill and Dana Goldberg. 
Sound design and engineering by Molly Hockey. Jesse Egan is our copywriter. And our art and web designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios. The MSW Book Club is a proud member of MSW Media, a group of creator-owned podcasts focused on news, justice, and politics. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. <laughs>